Heavenly Father, we pray that you would strengthen us with your word now and that illuminated by it we would live our lives uh, in ways that bear fruit uh, that please you and are for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, shall I try this? Is that working? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, can I say well done for uh, being here, final week of lectures. Uh, that's a terrific thing, and I hope that uh, you'll uh, find, as I found uh, throughout the week, that studying this portion of Scripture is a very valuable thing. Today we go boldly, where angels fear to tread. Uh, what is before us this afternoon is clear, strong instruction about domestic life. If that wasn't enough beyond domestic life, uh, we go even into the complex realm of industrial relations. Now, if you can think of more controversial and complex contemporary issues, uh, both of which have been in the newspaper this week, if you can think of more controversial issues, you're doing better than me. As far as domestic life is concerned, of course, uh, that is relationships between husbands and wives and between parents and children, uh, our culture, I suggest you, is almost entirely at a loss. The gap between vision and reality is huge and growing. We want our homes to be a refuge, but all too often the home is something from which people take refuge, emotionally and sometimes even physically, because it's simply no longer safe. Listen to how one vision of domestic life might go, I quote, and so the home must be the foundation of our national life. It is there that character is formed. It is there that we appear as we really are. <coughs> it is there that we can fling aside the weary disguises of the outer world and be ourselves. It is there that we can retreat from the noise and stress and temptation and dissipation of daily life to seek the sources of fresh strength and renewed purity. What a load of tripe. Not the bit about character being formed in the home, I suspect that's true but the bit about homes being a place where we just let go and be ourselves. Homes like that, I suggest, are war zones with real and serious casualties, mostly uh, those who are most vulnerable, the physically and emotionally young and weak. Uh, at the same time, perhaps even a more destructive war zone is industrial relations. I don't know if you've made up your mind yet about the new legislation being proposed. I'm not sure how you could make up your mind, since mostly what we've had is nothing much more than a pretty constant stream of propaganda. Both sides working hard to outspend each other. What is it, the 20, 40 million, was it, by the government? That's an astonishing amount of propaganda. You may have read the original documents. You can put your hands up if you want to be boastful, but don't do that. <laughs> so I doubt you've made up your mind at least where you ought to have, but whatever you think about the issues... One thing's clear, it's not working, is it, system? It's just not working. And so into these heated arenas, the Apostle Paul is bold enough to shine the light of the word of Christ. Listen to what he says. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Fathers, 
do not provoke your children or they may lose heart. Now all of the specifics of the instructions to wives and husbands and uh, fathers or parents in general and children but before we get there some general things uh, to note. Firstly, the very fact that the Apostle gives these instructions and the specific instructions that he gives show us that the home, every bit as much as the outside world, is a place that has its own particular temptations and corruptions and miseries. One of the errors we can make is to think that the home somehow has a kind of natural tendency in it to go right. It's that view which powers the thought that you can just kind of relax the holiness muscles at home and chill out. Uh, When I was young and used to work hard, I'd go away on uh, weekends away a lot, 16 or, or 18 a year. And often I'd speak at these weekends away and uh, regarding myself, uh, I think unconsciously, as something of a hero, I would go off after preparing talks for the weekend, go and give these talks, uh, come home after late conversations, late at night, uh, tired and exhausted on Sunday afternoon, and return home to my family. And I was expected, I think, without really realising it, to be treated like Indiana Jones. I've been working hard all weekend, and I'm coming home now. There it is. And my wife should kind of welcome me in, usher me in, oh great guru, well done. <laughs> Have a sit down, let me get you a drink, a nice cold beer or something. Oh yes, and how was it and what wonders did you say and so on. I wanted to kind of relax when I got home. From my wife's point of view, of course, I'd just been a slack toad for yet another weekend and I was expected to leap with some enthusiasm into some real work around the place, uninterrupted hours of washing, cleaning and nappy changing. I was wrong. I had this view that somehow work was a place to relax from trying to please God. The fact is, since the fall, no organisation, no way of life has a natural tendency to go right. C.S. Lewis, in a brilliant little essay called The Sermon and the Lunch, uh, you find it in his book uh, called Underceptions, put it brilliantly. He asks, If a man, forgive his gender-specific language, if a man can't be comfortable and unguarded, can't take his ease and be himself in his own house, where can he? And he answers his own question, he says, that, I confess, is the trouble. The answer is an alarming one. There is nowhere this side of glory where one can safely lay the reins on the horse's neck. Uh, That's an agricultural image, in case uh, you didn't quite pick it up. There are these things called horses, and uh, they have legs, and you put these saddles over them so you can use them for transportation. And the way you guide them is with reins. And with strong horses, you see, they need to have the reins held tightly. And so the image of putting the reins on the horse's neck is to kind of relax. To say, okay, we can just let, let go and see where we go. And he says, there is nowhere this side of glory where one can safely lay the reins on the horse's neck. This does not mean, of course, that there's no difference between home life and general society. It does mean that home life has its own rule of courtesy. A code more intimate, more subtle, more sensitive, and therefore in some ways more difficult than that of the outside world. It's a brilliant insight. He follows it up with a second one. He says, therefore, if the home is to be a means of grace, it must be a place of rules. If the home is to be a means of grace, it must be a place of rules. That, that, that's a, a brilliantly sharp way to put it. We think that grace and rules are two alternatives to each other 
in grace then you don't need rules when you have rules then what you don't have is grace and the Lord says no that's nonsense for a home to be a place of grace it must have rules he says there cannot be a common life without a rule the alternative to rule is not freedom but the unconstitutional and often unconscious tyranny of the most selfish member you may have seen this if there are no rules then you get this kind of unconscious an unconstitutional tyranny either of the most selfish member it might be a kind of an oafish father or a brattish kid but where there are no rules it's not that there's freedom it's tyranny I think this is very helpful and gives us a framework for understanding the rationale behind the rules, the instructions that the Apostle Paul gives to us today they are for our freedom they are for grace now, third by way of introduction on this issue of home life, this set of relationships uh, is a very emotionally charged set of relationships. I don't know if there's a more complicated relationship than mothers and daughters. Any daughters out there, you know what I'm saying, don't you? Mothers and daughters is a kind of an arena into which it is madness. <laughs> Ever to stray, if you're not one. The only thing that's more complex than mothers and daughters is fathers and sons. Uh, I was at a wedding on... Saturday and uh, a boy was getting you know a son was getting married and the father gave the speech it was a long and windy speech I mean we're talking probably 45 minutes oh. did I care he was deeply moved this father was crying I was deeply I was crying was I thinking about the son I couldn't tell us about the son I was thinking about my son and how I would be when I stood there with him in front of me and his daughter's bride and me and my son and how he would have fulfilled every hope that I had for him and all this kind of stuff very deep emotional issues are attached to father-son relationships it only gets worse what about mothers and sons sons who love to be mothered by their mothers and mothers who love to mother their sons uh, I've been married only about 10 years and uh, we go and visit my parents uh, at their, their house and it was, it was I found them very pleasant occasions uh, I would be uh, ushered in as expected and seated whilst my mother would mother me. Uh, the trick here, of course, was that she expected my wife to join her in mothering me, uh, getting my drinks for me and feeding me and just asking if, gen- in general, life was good and how could she make it more excellent for me. And I regressed. It would, I, I instantly, I was back to being 15 years old and we loved it. She loved it, mothering me. I loved it being mothered. Mothers and sons, one of the great challenges of life for you sons is to get out from under the apron strings of your mothers that's one of your jobs in life we'll come to that in a moment and only more complex than this most of all is fathers and daughters oh my daughters I have two daughters they are my heart and my joy they are seven and five at the moment and so relatively safe (laughs) but I look forward to meeting any boy that gets anywhere within 50 metres of us. <laughs> that young man and I will have some very full and frank conversations. <laughs> and there will be no holds barred, I can tell you that. These are emotionally charged relationships, aren't they? I'm not saying that they're healthy relationships, don't mishear me here, far from it. What I'm saying is that they are emotionally charged even when there's no communication or openness or positive feeling, 
there can be immensely strong emotional reaction going on. In fact, it's one of the reasons why such small things between mothers and daughters, for example, can lead to no conversation for six months, as it did with my wife and her mother, precisely because of the emotional intensity of these relationships. And that means that the wellsprings of our actions and reactions, especially our reactions, run very deep, very deep indeed, and it will take an equally deep insight and self-understanding to live in these relationships the way the Apostle says to live. In other words, when the Apostle gives us very short and brief words with very significant ramifications for our lives, what's before us is a lifetime of learning and growing into these things. There's no quick fix. Ah yes, here's what Paul says, here's what I'll do. It doesn't work quite like that anywhere, let alone here, in these emotionally fraught relationships. So, with these encouraging thoughts in mind, how ought wives and husbands to relate to each other in the name of Jesus? If they're to do everything in word and deed, in the name of Jesus, how should husbands and wives be? Well, look, listening up uh, to this, even if you're not married, uh, there's every chance that uh, you will marry, God willing, and you need to make sure that the person you marry is someone to whom you can do what the Apostle says wives and husbands ought to do. Okay, so girls, only marry husbands that you can hook a tasso to. There's no point doing something like getting married to someone that you can't do what the Bible tells you to do as a married woman. Likewise, husbands... Only marry a woman that you can seriously love and will never harshly treat. That's the first reason to listen up to what the Paul says. But secondly, we have this system called going out. Uh, you may have heard of it. It is, on the whole, a stupid system. Uh, it makes immorality virtually inevitable. Uh, and it sets up these sort of pseudo-marriages. Uh, the thing it means, though, is that these kinds of practice marriages, is that what they are really? It's just like such a dumb system. Uh, they have an echo, I think, sometimes a relatively large echo of a marriage relationship. So even though going out is not being married, right, the, I've told you this before, I know the nature of the commitment in going out is we'll hang around each other till one of us doesn't want to. Okay, that's what going out is, it's as thin as that. Marriage is we'll hang around each other under any and all circumstances until we're parted by death. Slightly different commitment. But going out has an echo, an echo of marriage, and so it ought to sound at least a little bit like this. So ready, wives, and echoing down the girlfriends, what the Apostle says is, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Now, I used the Greek word that lies behind the phrase be subject to uh, a little while ago, hupotasso, just because I think we can quickly and too easily jump to conclusions about what's meant by this phrase. Literally, or etymologically, uh, the word means hupo, under, and tasso, order. Under, order yourself. That's in Greek. Uh, in Latin, sub-order yourself. Or subordinate yourself. At some level, this has got to be about an ordered relationship. An ordered relationship. Not an order of worth or value, but an order... I suggest, of leadership or authority. One way to think about this is to understand that God may ask different questions of wives than he will ask of husbands on the Day of Judgment. There is a particular authority 
a particular responsibility, because authority and responsibility always go together, right? A particular responsibility or duty and with it authority that husbands have primarily, and for which it is a requirement that wives are to order themselves towards that, not to disorder themselves towards it. Now, I don't think that this has anything much to do with final decision-making. Some people say, oh, here's what uh, this issue of submission is that. It's who has the final say? Uh, decisions are often the most trivial things in marriages. And they, they represent hardly any challenge, frankly. Um, and it doesn't work, does it? The husband has the final say, but because he's a generous husband, he gives the wife the final say, so she has the final say. But she's a submissive wife, so she gives the final say back to the husband, and there's no say. Okay? Now, I don't think it's got much to do with, with who has the final say. It certainly hasn't got much to do with who puts the rubbish out, or who cooks dinner, uh, or who does the vacuuming in my house. I do at least two of those things. <laughs> what, what I think the real issues in marriage are, are the emotional issues. The real blockages in marriage are, are not the surface things about which wives and husbands tend to fight, but the emotional issues that underlie them, the challenge for both partners in marriage to be themselves real persons with their real values themselves, emotionally, if you like, distinct, and at the same time deeply connected. Not just connected without being themselves, that's a, an emotional fusion which leads to disaster. Nor being themselves without being connected, that's just a distance which is kind of room flatmating together. No. Well, what the psychologists call differentiation. Being yourself in connection with the other person. That is the great challenge of marriage. What I think uh, is going on here is that the Apostle says the husband has a very particular, we'll see uh, it in a moment, particular authority and responsibility to preserve and make sure there's always a way forward in that level of the marriage. And the wife is to order herself towards that as well to make sure that the relationship moves forward and doesn't get stuck. Now, secondly, as we introduce this issue, uh, hupotasso is very normal behaviour for Christians. We Christians are superb hupotastic individuals. We love hupotastizing. <laughs> Citizens are to hupotasso themselves to the governing authorities, says the Apostle Paul, same word. The spirits of the prophets are hupotasso to the prophets. In other words, New Testament prophecy is not an ecstatic experience, but a well-ordered experience. We all hupotasso ourselves to God, says James. Younger people are to hupotasso themselves to older people. Members of churches are to hupotasso themselves to leaders of churches. And wives hupotasso themselves to husbands. We love hupotasso. We live, eat, breathe and drink Hupatasso is perfectly normal behaviour for Christians all the time. You do it, I do it, we all do it a lot. Now why is it that we Christians are into this? Is it because we're doormats? Is it just because we haven't got the guts to kind of stand up and be ourselves? No, of course not. We're Christian. We Christians live hupatastic lives. Why? Maybe because Jesus did? because we understand that this is how life is lived by the Lord Jesus who did not grasp onto his glory but emptied himself and became obedient and humbled himself and so that this kind of way of life just makes sense for us Christians that's how it is that's how God is that's how God is it's not somehow weak, it's great strength 
is not somehow weird. It's very normal. It's weird to think that it's weird. You see, it's, a, it's the perversion of our culture that says that living a hypotastic life is somehow abnormal. No, it's entirely normal and straightforward. Thirdly, notice that wives are to hypotastic themselves to their husbands, not women to men in general. This is a specific, not a general instruction, although it's possible to translate the word uh, that lies behind wife as woman and the word that lies behind husband as man. Uh, it's just the same Greek word used for both translations, guner, uh, the uh, word woman or, or wife, uh, aner, where we get our andros from, uh, for man or husband. It's the your that makes it clear that it's specific. Uh, wives, uh, be subject to your man, your husband. Some people say that there is a general command in Scripture that all women ought to submit to all men. It's wrong. It's just not true. Uh, you can go the other way, though. Some say in the equivalent command in Ephesians, uh, where Paul has his heading over his section uh, that's parallel to this, uh, be subject or submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, but therefore what he's really saying is that wives submit to husbands and husbands submit to wives. Again, that also is not true. Uh, the, the one another there doesn't mean everyone to everyone, it means certain people to certain people. One another. Certain people to certain people, as he goes on and describes in Ephesians, wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. So be subject to one another or submit to one another out of reverence for Christ in Ephesians 5.21 just does not mean dissolve the, dis, the, dis, the difference and the distinction between husbands and wives. No, this is what you call an asymmetrical instruction. Asymmetrical. Finally, notice the reason or basis for it. Paul says, as is fitting in the Lord. This is not some culturally constrained model from a misogynist society delivered by an unreconstructed male. Okay, no, this is an apostolic instruction of what it is to be a wife in the Lord, who does everything, whether in word or deed, in the name of the Lord, this is fitting in the Lord. Well, what's important as well as fascinating, of course, is that there is the flip side, the reciprocal side. This is very unusual and culturally uh, a breakthrough uh, in the Apostle Paul. Husbands, he says, love your wives and never treat them harshly. I read recently about a husband who decided to make an appointment with a marriage counsellor because his marriage was on rocky ground. His wife was hurt and upset and as she began to talk, uh, she crossed her arms and sort of, you know, steeled herself and recounted her loveless life. Tears filled her eyes and her lips started quivering. It wasn't long before the wise counsellor realised what the problem was. He was one of these sort of big bear-like individuals and so without saying a word, he took her by the hands, he looked her in the eyes for a long time and then he gave her a big hug, just kind of enfolded her. Well, a change immediately came over her face. She softened and her eyes lit up. Stepping back, the counsellor said to her husband, See, that's all she needs. The husband checked his diary and said, Well, it's terrific. I'll bring her back and she can see you every Tuesday and Thursday. Nah, <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> now, we, we, we laugh, and that actually didn't, I didn't tell her quite as well as I should have, but I got a better laugh in the other talks. Um, thank you we, we laugh but from time to time husbands can be even more stupid than that you're looking at one who has been and so Paul has a word for husbands it's not shocking but it is deeply challenging he says husbands love your wives love your wives 
In Ephesians, it's love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Seriously love your wives. Now here, of course, is the nature of the authority or the responsibility to which the wife is to order herself under. It is the authority and responsibility of self-sacrificing love. Husbands, seriously love your wives and that means stay engaged, stay connected. You see, I think the great temptation for husbands is to withdraw. Uh, is it John Gray who wrote the book Men from Mars, Women from Venus who popularised this by saying that men need their cave time. Uh, what John Gray wrote, Tui's has uh, depicted uh, in a great ad for Tui's beer. Uh, you see these uh, scenes of four different guys in four different houses just all making their excuses for their families but they need to go to the shed and just do a few things to sort of sort something out for the house. And so each of them makes his way to his own shed in the ad. I don't know if you've seen the ad. Uh, the, the, the scene pans aerial and you see that the four houses are on four blocks all adjacent to each other in a big square and their sheds are all in the centre of the four blocks. On the outside the sheds are ramshackle and broken down and sort of ivy growing everywhere. Inside, they've been transformed. They're all joined up. It's a sports bar. The guys all meet in the bar, the tables turn over, the pool table comes out, the flat screen TV goes on, the foxtail comes up, the beers are handed around, <laughs> the music's on, and the guys are in bloke heaven. Bloke heaven. A sports bar. Anywhere but with their wives and families. No food, no nappies, no crying, no messy emotions, just beer and sport. <laughs> uh, they've disengaged. And I don't know if you're a bloke who's seen that ad. I'm a bloke, I've seen that ad. And uh, as my kids are screaming and throwing things at each other, as there's washing up, I just think, where is my force? Where's those three guys that I can live next to that I can just kind of make my own little... I'd spend thousands on it. Paul says, don't disengage. Love your wives. Love your wives deeply and seriously. In particular, he says, uh, don't flip the other way. There's another flip side to disengagement, which is violent engagement. He says, love your wives and never, never, ever treat them harshly. I want you to hear this, guys. Uh, the statistics on domestic violence are appalling. Absolutely appalling. My understanding is that the statistics on domestic violence among Christian people are not that much less appalling. And I want to challenge you to sell it in your heart right now. That you will make a, a, an oath to yourself. Uh, I'm not sure you're supposed to make oath, but you will just kind of <laughs> really nail it to yourself that you will never even get close to treating your wife harshly with your words, let alone with your fists. Never. That you will do anything, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, no matter who you've got to speak to, no matter how you have to just kind of get out and get some help, you will never get close to what we call domestic violence, what God calls appalling sin. Yes? We're going to be different. We're going to love our wives and never, never treat them harshly. 
Now, of course, no matter how much we clarify this issue and try and get a kind of a sense and a grip on what it will be for Christian marriage to function well like this, uh, our culture will hate these words. And in fact, even as you're sitting here, you might be hating these words. Uh, I spoke uh, with a person yesterday who became a Christian yesterday morning. Okay, she became a Christian yesterday morning, showed uh, the people she was with, said, hey, why don't you come along to uh, a youth pub with me? <laughs> well, I don't, you know, she was kind of like a bit overwhelmed by it all. And, um, but, but she was trying to cope, I guess. Uh, but I can imagine, gee, this is a hard word to cope with, isn't it? It's the first thing you kind of read in your, your first talk. Uh, I think it's because uh, our culture operates with a weak, thin, piddling little fundamental relational value rather than a strong, rich value. I'll tell you what I mean. Our culture sees equality. Equality as the bedrock of personal relations. Equality. You hear it all the time. People are equal. I want to suggest to you that this is not an especially Christian notion. The notion of equality. You do a search on your Bible, uh, you know, if you've got a Google thing or a Bible software or something like that, I did this. Very, very few references to equality. Mainly between weights and measures to make sure that you don't rip people off. Okay? Very few references. It's not much of a Christian notion I think it comes primarily from the Enlightenment and that bastion of good thinking, the French Revolution. <laughs> Liberté, égalité, fraternité. <laughs> and with their liberty, equality and fraternity, these streets of Paris flowed, drenched in blood. I'm not sure you'd look for the French Revolution for much guidance on anything. It is thin and weak, this notion of equality, when applied to relationships, when applied to weights and measures, it's, I think, a useful thing. But when applied to relationships, it's thin and weak and feeble, mainly because it doesn't correspond to reality. It flattens out differences, it tends towards sameness, and it leaves no relational room. Uh, the Bible is far wiser. Its fundamental vision of relationships is not so much equality, but the deeper and richer notion of unity. Do a word search on unity, oneness, one, hundreds of texts come up. As soon as you say it, of course, you get a sense of why unity is a far deeper and richer and more useful vision of relationships between people. God himself is one, is a unity, a unity of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. A unity that leaves space for difference leaves space for order all within an underlying oneness. And what we are called to in relationships is unity, not equality, I would suggest. Unity, not equality. The fact is that any given husband or wife, in fact any given two people, are not equal in so many ways. They're not equal in physical strength, they're not equal in intelligence, they're not equal in role, they're not equal in what work they do or how much work they do or how much it takes out of them or what energy they have. They're not equal in personality and temperament and tone. And to pretend that they are, or worse, to try and force them to be that way is just destructive. Now, the vision for our relationships is not to be equality as though you and I all have to be the same. What an appalling thought. More people like me. No. What we want 
is our differences to be real and for us not to be equal but to be unified. Unified within those differences. Husbands and wives are called to be one. God has made them one flesh, you see. One family, one kin. Unified but not equal. I think if you get a grip on this difference between unity and equality, if you understand the richness and depth of the notion of unity as compared to the notion of equality, it will give you a, a, a basis on which you can come to terms with Paul's vision here for relationships and particularly between husbands and wives. Now there's much more to say but we're going to move on to the even more complex area of children and a unity between parents and children that again recognises that distinctions that are real but has a vision for a union, a unity of love and care. Notice again what uh, children are to do. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Uh, this is even more than submit. This is the word is not hupotasso here. It's the word for obedience. And uh, if you're a child, I think that's probably most of us here today. We're children, and uh, for you, mostly, you live at home. Uh, if not during term time, then you'll scuttle home after the exams and return to your homes. Uh, it's a scary word, isn't it? Obey. A couple of things to say about this. First, I think it's fair to say that the nature of obedience changes as the nature of the relationship changes. Uh, the goal of parents is adult children. That's what we parents like. That's what we're after. That's what we're trying to do. Turn you into adults. Responsible, mature, independent people in the right sense of that word, independent. Emotionally and financially, their own people able to make their own way in the world and yet, of course, in relationship to their parents. And that means that the kind of obedience that I say, for example, as a 39-year-old man, that I give to my mum just ought to be different from when I was nine years old. And the nature of the relationship is different and therefore the shape or texture of the obedience, likewise, will be different. I think for uni students, you're in this kind of twilight zone a little bit. On the one hand you are adults in so many ways physically, uh, mentally um, uh, sexually uh, you are adulthood is reached earlier and earlier these days because of good health and education systems that we have. So on one hand you're, you're adult early on the other hand we endlessly delay independence. After all better have someone else to cook and clean for you is it? So 21 comes Ooh, moving out no, 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 no. <laughs> 25 comes moving out Ooh, no, 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 no. 30, there's an increasing sort of pestilence around of these sort of older and older people who not for good reasons right, but just because they're too lazy or too sort of emotionally inclined just to be able to be independent adults just stay at home that don't get me wrong I, I stayed at home until I was uh, you know, older and older and I know plenty of people who do my mum and my sister presently live together uh, the point is it's possible to not attain adulthood and keep putting it off. You're in the middle of that sort of zone here at uni, right? And it means a challenging time for you in relation to your parents. Uh, I want to suggest that you have a basic duty, especially while you're at home. While you're living under the roof that your parents provide, a basic duty for you to obey your parents. That, that whatever nuancing we might want to do to this instruction, we don't want to so nuanced that it ends up meaning don't obey your parents. That would be a mistake. 
That means unless there's something spiritually seriously wrong with what they're saying, then you should probably just do it. If you have chores, then do them. If your parents would like you to be at home for, you know, say one meal a month, that's probably not asking too much. If you have mealtime responsibilities, then do them. Uh, as you grow older and become more and more independent, uh, then the shape of obedience, I think, takes more a respect and ongoing connection as you increasingly do not what your parents want, but what you want. So for me, it's as I left home and chose not to go down the career path that my parents had for me, I needed to both do the thing that I believed was right for me, take responsibility for it, and have an ongoing respect and connection with my parents, even in the midst of not doing the thing that they had laid out for me. You see, the great task that you have uh, in in late adolescence is to recognise two things. One, that your parents have failed you. It's a terrible shock to realise that your parents really have failed you. Uh, When you're young, you think your parents are perfect. The other day, uh, my daughter said to me, Dad... You know everything. I said, yes, I do. (laughs) Especially I know about boys. So so you listen to me. Uh, My other daughter said to me, said to to me, my mum is the best mum in the whole world. She's perfect. And you know what that was? She bought her an ice cream. (laughs) Not very high standard, you see. Now we laugh at five and seven-year-olds and they're kind of cute, and they are, but it's not that difficult to take those five and seven-year-old attitudes and turn them into ten-year-old attitudes and fifteen-year-old attitudes and into twenty-year-old attitudes and to not kind of quite get to the point of revising them and saying, yes, actually, my dad doesn't know everything. In fact, you know, pretty much stuff all. (laughs) And my mum's not perfect. And she might buy ice creams, but there are some failures as well. And to own the fact that your parents are genuinely, like you, fallen individuals who need forgiving in real ways, including in their parenting. All good intentions, yes, of course, and maybe not even good intentions. But to own the fact, really, that your parents have not been the perfect people that when you were five, and perhaps when you were 15, and perhaps even still, you want them to be. That's the first thing. But on the second thing, to go beyond those failures and to keep connecting with them, respecting and loving them as the the fallen but real people that they are, just as you are a fallen real person. The the danger of not doing this is to keep projecting this idealism and then to flip out. You may know people who flipped out against their parents, who just rebel violently and furiously, who reject. And back to what I was saying before, the deep emotional attachments that we have uh, the inability to, to understand realistically the nature of the parent-child relationship. And so to just flip out in a way that says as much about the child and her or his false and foolish expectations as it does about the parent and his or her failure. You see, the ch- your challenge here in, obey- in hearing this word of the Apostle to obey your parents is to both own the failures of your parents and move beyond that to keep loving them, to keep serving them, to keep praying for them, to keep obeying them. 
Now notice fathers, likewise, uh, which can actually refer to parents of either sex, as it turns out, so the scholars say, are not to provoke their children or to exasperate them, or they may lose heart. Again, this is a very uh, good insight from the Apostle, and loss of heart or dispiritedness, perhaps depression, uh, these are great dangers for children. If they're treated poorly, that is, if the rightful authority and even power the parents have is used badly. I'll give you a few tips on how to provoke and dispirit your child. Ready? Here's some tips. If you need any help, first ignore them. That's going to work. Be a very fine thing for children to grow ignored, unloved, and unaccepted. Uh, if you can add to ignoring, indulging, that will do double the job of provoking your children and exasperating them. These two normally go together. Ignore, 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 indulge. Ignore, 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 indulge. Indulging means giving people, giving the kids uh, some, everything they want, spoiling them and therefore ensuring that they will live life dissatisfied because there's always the next sugar candy around the corner. Another way to uh, really do badly in the parenting states is to insult your children. Uh, I suspect our homes are the rudest places on earth just because people can't escape so easily from there uh, and typically where the rudeness that happens in homes happens elsewhere then there is a parting of the ways. Homes are the places where most rudeness is spoken most often. And for parents to criticise their kids because they failed to live up to their expectations of them, which happens so easily, will knock the sucking out of a child faster than anything else, uh, except perhaps intimidating them. Just kind of standing over them and slicing the child's self-esteem. Ignore, indulge, insult and intimidate these are good ways to mistreat your children. Now, very briefly, uh, I'm aware that there's much more to say. It's a very complex area. I know that uh, in my own relationships with my parents, I've had a lot of reflection and work to do. Uh, and I've, I've, there's no reason to think that your relationships with your parents are any less complex. Paul gives one single word, right? Obey your parents, again, because it is fitting in the Lord. It is your acceptable duty in the Lord. It's not a cultural issue. It's a lordship issue. And it will take great wisdom. Not wisdom to know how to wiggle your way out of the instruction so it doesn't really touch you. No, great wisdom to know and understand yourself and your parents in such a way that you can wisely do what it is the Apostle calls you to. Slaves, he goes on, verse 22, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, put yourselves into what is done for the Lord and not for your masters, since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong has been done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, for you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now I'll leave you to do the research, uh, which is fairly accessible, on the uh, whole uh, institution of slavery in the ancient world. Perhaps half of the people in the ancient world were slaves, they did all the work, and then the other half of the population owned the slaves, they did no work. That's just how it was. It's a situation of profound power imbalance, but outside the immediate family relationship, and therefore is parallel to, though not exactly the same as, but parallel to our industrial relations, employment relations, I suggest. Power imbalance outside family relations. Notice the Apostle says four things. One, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in all things. There's a, a matter of behaviour here which is of obedience. 
Now I'm suggesting Christian employees or for that matter Christian students. What a fine word this is for you as you come to your second last day of lectures for the year. Obey your lecturers in everything. When they say read something they mean ignore <laughs> entirely. Is that right? No, they mean read it. Learn it. Think about it. Know it. Regurgitate it. <laughs> Secondly, notice the attitude that's here. It doesn't just stop with obedience. It's an attitude not only while being watched in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Throw yourself into it. Put yourself into it, the Apostle says. An attitude here is important, not just reluctantly or for what another translation puts as eye service, that is doing something to be seen, but wholeheartedly. Thirdly then, that leads to the next issue, which is why? Because, well, who's your real boss? Who's your real boss? Is it your lecturer? Is it your employer? Is it your manager? Is it your student? No, your real boss is the Lord Jesus Christ. See what the Apostle says? You serve the Lord Christ. Now, if only you had time, this is, this is a most wonderful word because suddenly that whole area of life called work is dignified as the service of Christ. You want to serve Christ? Are you going to deepest, darkest dubbo? And, and I'm a missionary there. That's a fantastic thing. It's a great way to serve. I'll tell you another way to serve Christ. Be an engineer. Or something equally obscure. <laughs> ah, it's the last day of lectures, you know what I mean? You kind of got to have another go. <laughs> Be an engineer. That's you serve the Lord Christ. You're, you, you're sitting there fixing those, you know, computer programs or whatever engineers do these days. <laughs> Telling other people what to do who do real things. That's what engineers do as far as I can tell. <laughs> you're serving the Lord Christ. <laughs> so do it as though, I mean you say, not as though, because Jesus is there watching you. say, oh it's good, terrific, that's great. Here's what I'm going to do. Excellent. Do a good job. And fourthly, your pay. You know what your pay is? It's not your pay. That's all right, isn't it? Because if you feel like you're getting ripped off, then you won't feel so bad anymore because it's not your real pay anymore. Your real pay, you receive your reward, the inheritance as your reward. From Him. From Him. Well, masters also have their word, justice and fairness is to be the hallmark of the way masters or employers by uh, association treat their employees. If you ever have responsibility over someone, Justice is the indispensable key to maintaining good relations in the workplace. Very stern warning for masters, or for you if you're a master or an employer, you too have your master in heaven. In other words, he will treat you like you treat them. Yes? So you be careful. You do it right. You be fair. It's a gem, this letter, isn't it, Colossians? It speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord in His being. He is Lord by His achievement. He is the Creator, Sustainer and Redeemer. He is the origin, destiny and health of all things. The Apostle says, You have received this one as Lord if you've been baptised into Him. His death counts for your death. His life counts for your life. You have received this one as Lord. Therefore, continue in Him. Continue in the rich life of giving, loving, humble, gentle service. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. You've received Him as Lord. Continue in Him in this way. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise You that You have made us 
to come under your Lordship and we pray that you would uh, so grant us your Holy Spirit and so fill us with your love and purpose that we would always continue in you. We ask it for your glory.